postpartum body odor. It is a totally natural phenomenon because your body chemistry changes after giving birth. And so sometimes that means that what worked before is no longer effective. But I am excited to say that now there is a solution for that stubborn odor. The Sugar Sugar Postpartum Deodorant is a completely natural deodorant made by a postpartum mom who went through it herself. And it works by eliminating and preventing bacterial body odor without covering up your skin's comforting smell to your baby while giving you 12 hours of odor control. And let me tell you, it actually works. Here at the house, we've all been trying it and loving it. Now, before you think, ew, you're sharing a deodorant with your husband and daughter, let me explain that this full-body deodorant comes in a convenient pump applicator that lets you apply it anywhere on your body with no bacteria traveling on the deodorant, so no ew involved. We also love that the Sugar Sugar Postpartum Deodorant has a delightful natural scent of USDA certified organic extracts that smell like a pink sugar cookie with lemon frosting. I thought this would be a little strange, but it's actually amazing. Also, the Sugar Sugar Postpartum Deodorant is free from artificial fragrances and any kind of senoestrogens or herbs that can interfere with breastfeeding. Find your Sugar Sugar Postpartum Deodorant at postpartumdeodorant.com. That's postpartumdeodorant.com and use the code BIRTHFUL for 20% off through the month of May. Get your Sugar Sugar Postpartum Deodorant now at postpartumdeodorant.com and start smelling more like yourself again. I love Jenny Kane. At this very moment, I'm feeling so comfy and cozy as I'm practically getting a hug from my Jenny Kane crop cashmere cocoon cardigan. I am enjoying this sweater so much that I've been living in it all spring long. And with Mother's Day just around the corner, this is a feeling you can gift all the well-deserving moms, moms-to-be, and mother figures in your life by giving them the gift of Jenny Kane. Along with bringing you this episode, Jenny Kane is a California brand through and through, and their staples make getting dressed so super easy. Think minimalist and effortless, but totally refined. Jenny Kane means luxurious cashmere sweaters, iconic accessories, elevated versions of your everyday basics, plus the most incredible home essentials. For a limited time, Birthful listeners get 15% off their first order. Go to JennyKane.com and use the code BIRTHFUL15 to get 15% off and support the show. Jenny Kane is known for their quintessential sweaters, with their cotton collection providing you with the perfect everyday pieces as the days get warmer. But they also have gorgeous sundresses in a variety of silhouettes for any occasion and spectacular sandals to go along with them. Find the perfect Mother's Day gift or curate your new spring go-tos at JennyKane.com. Birthful listeners get 15% off your first order when you use the code BIRTHFUL15 at checkout. That's 15% off your first order at J-E-N-N-I-K-A-Y-N-E dot com, promo code BIRTHFUL15. Get yourself and the mothers in your life the gift of Jenny Kane.
Hey, Adriana here. I wanted to let you know that starting this week, we'll be going back to our older format of one episode per week so that we can start easing into the summer and you can have more time catching up and going through our fabulous Birthful Library. Happy listening. Welcome to the Birthful Podcast. I'm Adriana Lozada, and today we'll be talking about newborn sugar level concerns and breastfeeding. There are certain conditions where a newborn's risk of hypoglycemia increases. What are those conditions? How and when are they tested for? If there's a concern, does that mean your baby needs formula supplementation? And how does all of this impact initial breastfeeding? Dr. Casey Rosencarroll has answers. Stay tuned. The Birthful Podcast, talking to maternity pros and new parents to inform your intuition. Hello, mighty parents and parents-to-be. As always, thank you for all the love you give this show and your ratings and your reviews and your requests and your general support. If what you hear is helpful, make sure you subscribe so you don't miss a thing. All right. So my guest today is Dr. Casey Rosencarroll, who is Medical Director of Lactation Services and Programs at the University of Rochester, where she practices outpatient and inpatient breastfeeding medicine. And her research focus is in systems change for breastfeeding education and support. So I cannot think of anyone better suited to help us understand all these ins and outs and intricacies of what the concern and protocols for addressing the risk of new born hypoglycemia are all about and the impact that this has on breastfeeding initiation. So I am super happy and excited to have her here today. Let's get started. Welcome, Casey. It is so, so lovely. Such an honor to have you here today. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited. I've heard about your podcast since I moved here and I'm just excited to be on it. So thank you for including me. Yeah, and we have the the fortune of being in the same city. So um, we get to connect not just on the podcast, but out in the field, in the hospitals yeah. and such. And, and referring to each other, which is great. Yeah, yeah. So I was definitely excited to to be able because you're so knowledgeable and you do such amazing research that having you on the show is a treat for sure. Oh, thank you. Why not? And I did give a bit of intro um, before we started talking about what you do, but why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. So I um. I was trained as a pediatrician, and then I transitioned a few years back into just doing full-time breastfeeding medicine, and I'm so blessed to be able to have made that a career. So I work in the outpatient setting, so I see patients in clinic with a group of awesome lactation consultants, and I also round in the hospital most of the time in our NICU or our birth center, um, but also on the cardiac floors or in the pediatric floors or occasionally in the ER if they need us. And sometimes people wonder what is breastfeeding medicine, right? Most people have heard of lactation consultants, um, but we kind of think of breastfeeding medicine as just the medical side of the lactation consultant work. So lactation consultants do a lot of latch and positioning and timing and back to work and awesome counseling. And um, whereas breastfeeding medicine providers tend to focus more on issues, medical issues like medications or how certain illnesses like rheumatoid arthritis or multiple sclerosis might interact with breastfeeding. Um, we also do a lot of work with kids with suck dysfunction and tongue tie. 
Um, and then in the hospital, I spend a lot of time trying to figure out how our policies are working or not working for parents in terms of helping people to breastfeed. And I do research in breastfeeding as well. Mm-hmm. Lots of places, lots of things. And yeah. it is, I know that in the past we've talked um, about how almost it was ridiculous that it took so long for breastfeeding medicine to even be a thing. Right. Yeah. And, you know, Dr. Ruth Lawrence, who was sort of the grandmother of the field, she helped to establish the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine and the U.S. Breastfeeding Committee um, and really tried to turn this into more of a mainstream thing. And I'm following in her footsteps and I'm so lucky, Um, but it still needs to be more institutionalized. And I don't mean that in a way that will you know, kind of decrease or mainstream its worth, but more to get more people to recognize that this is something that we do and that there's more that we can do if people are having trouble breastfeeding um, rather than just handing somebody a bottle. Um, and we can have better outcomes, both for breastfeeding, but also for how these parents think about it and feel about it. I mean, they're trying so hard and they need more help. Exactly. Yeah. Trying so hard. And I think that's the the insight that I appreciate of how you come at, about come towards your approach towards creating protocol or establishing, you know, the the considering both the parents and the hospital needs and how can that be supportive for everybody involved. And I think that was a piece that was missing. Yeah, I mean, and I saw it in my own care with my own babies, and I saw it as a pediatrician. And so I just really appreciate being able to be part of the solution. Um, I think doctors, I think we need to work as hard as the parents are working at these things. And we can't just leave it all up to people say, you know, breastfeeding is really great. Now go do it, you know, and I think that's how a lot of people end up uh, feeling about it. Mm, Yeah. So we're going to go down a little bit of a rabbit hole today because we're going to go, we're going to take all that breastfeeding support and knowledge and then go specifically looking at sugar levels and hypoglycemia because this tends to be a point of concern for providers that a lot of parents don't even know about or is on their radar. And I find that that can be a really disconnect in those first few hours of the, or even in within the first few minutes of a baby's life of, hey, we have to do these tests or we have to check for the, you know, sugar levels. So that's our broad talk for today. Um, <laughs> let's back up. How, why do we even care about sugar levels? Yeah, I think it's great. And this is a great thing to talk about because um, I love your perspective as a doula coming in that way, um, saying like, wow, you just gave birth to a brand new life and now I'm going to start poking it, you know, and that feels really bad. Um, so caring about sugar levels, what, I, what I'd like everybody to picture is you can think of a strawberry shortcake doll or like an anime character, like basically a bobblehead character that has like a giant head and a teeny tiny body. And those images are so cute because they're based off of the newborn infant that has a really much bigger head than it does to body size, right? And I bet you talk about this in other podcasts, talking about where that head goes as it's coming out. Um, but in this case, we're really talking about it in that the head is makes up a large part of the body and it's full of brain. 
And brain doesn't have its own energy source. It doesn't have its own glucose. And so that's a large percentage of the body that can't really take care of itself, unlike the other tissues of the body that have muscle around and fat around and so forth, or even, you know, different forms of glucose. And so what happens, the reason we care about sugar levels is because newborns have a really high need for glucose. It's like two to three times higher the rate that an older child or an adult will need. Um, And so it takes a lot of feeding to meet that rate. And if that rate falls off, then the first organ you can imagine that it impacts um, is the brain, right? And so in severe cases, that has led to neurodevelopmental issues or even hypoglycemic, so low sugar level seizures, um, coma, and unfortunately, um, some babies haven't made it because of hypoglycemia. Mm-hmm. And, and and so the risk is, the the possibilities, right, is it's uh-huh. very scary if something happens, but the actual risk of that developing, what are we talking about? Yeah. So one of the problems with this whole field is that we're really not quite sure what is normal and testing the boundaries of what is normal is kind of complicated, right? Because anytime you try to test the boundaries, that means you incur a certain risk. And if you incur that risk for something like a seizure or a coma, that's a really bad idea. So at least we know that about 10% of babies of like healthy term babies will have what we call transient hypoglycemia means that right after birth. And I think we're going to talk about some of these mechanisms later, but right after birth, the blood sugar could go down. And then because you go skin to skin and then you breastfeed right away, um, it should come right back up again. We really don't have good numbers for how often it results in um, it going down or staying down. So the severe and persistent hypoglycemia, low blood sugar, um, we don't have great numbers for how often that happens and results in seizures or coma um, or mortality. Um, there are some figures that look like they'll, you know, and, and the evidence is a little bit conflicting here, but there are some figures that will say things like in one preterm population, um, the babies with hypoglycemia had a three and a half times higher risk of developmental delay four years later, right? Which, you know, is a lot for a preterm population to go up. Um, other studies will say 30% of babies with low blood sugar um, had lower scores on developmental testing. Um, but again, those studies were done in preterms, and they're not always, I mean, you can't easily translate that to the healthy term newborn who's going to be right on you know, his mom's chest and, and start nursing right away. And you also, I guess it would be hard to say specifically that this is called because because of the sugar levels and not exactly. something else about being premature. Right. And so, you know, we do things in statistics to try to account for that. You know, you try to compare as close as you can apples to apples, preterms to preterms, and you can control for race and socioeconomics. But even then, you know, any study is really trying to get as close as you can to truth, but isn't truth, you know, and you need to, you need to be able to interpret it. Mm-hmm. 
And so, and you said that about 10% of healthy term babies have what is called this transient hypoglycemia, which I did find in the literature that it seems to be normal for a baby's blood sugars to go down a bit on that first hour and then come up on their own, regardless of what you do. Is this something that, you know, for all this process, does the body not have a protective mechanism to help out? Do we know about it? Yeah. Right. Or even is it useful for some reason that we don't fully understand, right? Like the kids with jaundice that don't end up getting treated, but just have some jaundice, right? Is there a survival benefit that we just don't understand yet? So there's really three ways that the little baby ones can come out and this will and make sugar. Um, And this will help us later understand why some babies are more at risk for this than others. Um, One is that your liver has what's called glycogen in it, glycogen stores that can be broken down to make sugar, to make glucose, right? The second is that muscle can be broken down to make ketones. People tend to know a little bit more about ketones because like if you run a race, then you could have ketones or like a diabetic, right, can have ketones. And then the third way is that your fats should be breaking down um, and you can get some free fatty acids and you can make you can make glucose and ketones and other fuels in that way. And so when you come out as a baby, your liver's not that big. Your glycogen stores, you haven't really needed to rely on your liver for this because you've been relying on mommy and the placenta or the parent. And, you know, you don't have a lot of musculature and you don't have a whole lot of fat to burn, right? And so it's, you know, your whole body is transitioning from being dependent on your birth parent to all of a sudden being dependent on these other mechanisms. And it can take maybe an hour or two for those to kick in um, for most healthy term babies who aren't going to end up with low blood sugar. And this forms the basis of like, why are we only measuring blood sugars routinely in babies who are at higher risk? Right. And, um, And since we're talking about those things, can you also speak about brown fat? Yeah. And, you know, I think brown fat is like... Really, I mean, it's amazing stuff. It's um, if you think about brown fat and you're trying to, if it's the first time you've heard of the words, think about bears, bears and babies, brown, right? Um, Because it's super insulating and it's metabolically active, right? As opposed to being like much harder to break into, like, you know, my fat stores is an over 40 year old woman. Um, and so that is one of those innate mechanisms by which babies can can start recovering more quickly after birth. Mm-hmm. And I just recently found about brown fat and I was fascinated. I was like, ah, oh, it's okay if the milk's not yeah. completely there. This instant, right. you got a little bit of something there to, to balance, shore you up, balance you in case, give you so that all is not lost, right? Yeah. I love that. And that's a beautiful way of saying it, right? Some of these things are, you know, the best survival is uh, with everything working as it should, right? Without us getting in the way. And in fact, in in this topic, one of the concerns is over treatment for something that should be considered normal. Right. And I, in coming from the angle of birth, you know, I find that within the birthing process, there's so many little mechanisms of that when you, you find out, it's like, oh, nature's got it. Because if we right. weren't here, like, if we were out in the wild, there something needed to happen. This, you know, like right. this situation could arise in the wild. And 
nature's got it. So Right. Yeah, right. And that should be reassuring for people, right? That more often than not, what hospitals are trying to do these days is get back to the way it's been done, you know, with the uh, exception of the past century. Right. Yeah. Um, so in terms of hypoglycemia, um, are there any specific signs or symptoms that show that it is happening? Yeah. And I think, you know, this is where we get into like how how do we draw the line between making sure that people are going to have the best experience, the more, most physiologic, like normal anatomy kind of experience, and then paying lots of close attention to when things aren't going well so that we prevent anything that we can, right, that, that could be really damaging for newborns. So when we think about signs and symptoms um, that show it, the problem with the signs and symptoms for hypoglycemia is that they're really nonspecific. So, you know, I think even, you know, parents that have like other kids, you can still have kind of a hard time reading your baby's cues, right? And when babies get sick, they don't act like older kids who get sick. And so the types of signs and symptoms we're looking for can also look like other things like infection or birth trauma. But broadly speaking, they can be classified into two different categories. One is called neurogenic, which is also adrenergic. And those both mean genic means like coming from. So one would be like coming from neuro. So kind of the brain neurologic system, adrenergic, right? And then the other is neuroglycopenic, which basically means neuro, which is neurology, brain system. Glyco means sugar and penic means low. So in that first category, which is really the adrenergic category, if you think about adrenergic, you're thinking about adrenaline, right? So it's that fight or flight type stuff. So how are you feeling when you're feeling like your adrenaline is up? You might be jittery, you might have a high-pitched cry if you're a baby, um, you might be hard to settle, you might have a hard time uh, feeding. And tachypnea too, so breathing fast is a common neurogenic sign or adrenergic, same thing, sign um, of low blood sugar. And then the other, which is the low blood sugar affecting the neurologic system, would be like babies who are just not getting enough to their brain and they start settling out into not breathing as much and being kind of floppy and being poor feeders at the breast and being sleepy. And in my experience, we see that a lot more with hypoglycemia. So, you know, it might be that those are the earlier signs, uh, but we do see both. Mm -hmm. And they're like extreme, like polar opposites almost. Like one's yeah. super jittery and the other one's more lethargic. Right. And you would think that it would have something to do with a continuum, but we really just don't have good enough data for that at this time. And so it might be more about, you know, something innate about that baby or the birth process. Um, as well. Births are so complex these days, mm -hmm. as you know. And so, you know, it's possibly that we possible that we just haven't teased that all out yet. Mm. Let's take a break. When we come back, um, let's get into, you know, how this testing is done and who is more at risk and for getting or who has more of an indicated indication of needing to be tested. We'll be right back. And we are back talking talking with Dr. Casey Rosencarroll about sugar levels and newborns and breastfeeding and all that good stuff. So 
In terms of the screening itself um, and to check those sugar levels, is it something that every baby needs to have done? Or, and how is that screening done? Or do we have certain kids that are like, hmm, you're more at risk, let's check you? Yeah. And so it's definitely the latter. And the reason why is because as we start talking numbers, you'll see that we really just don't have a consensus yet um, about which numbers are important. And and the reason why is because there hasn't been one number that we found for sure will indicate um, how a baby's going to do clinically. So you could have a baby with a, a blood sugar of 30 and you could have a, another baby, baby B with a blood sugar of 30 and one can be doing fine and the other could be having a seizure. So what we try to do is we try to really target the things that have gone along with the poor outcomes in the studies, right? So instead of saying like, it's clear that we're not sure that the number is everything, and so what we're going to do is we're really going to look at, okay, what are the things that go with numbers that should make us worried about how those numbers are going to impact them? Make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So one of the things is late preterm, right? So these are the babies who are born like 34 to just before 37 weeks. Um, they're a little bit early. That means that their liver's not working quite as hard. Remember, we talked about that. They don't have as much muscle. They don't have the brown fats as much, right? They come out looking a little bit skinny um, and a little bit immature. So they would get screened. Small for gestational age. So that would be babies who are like less than 10th percentile for weight. Um, and so in, you know, in a in a full-term baby, that would be like six pounds, nine ounces if you're a boy or six pounds, three ounces if you're a girl. Um, and Or any baby that kind of looks like they should be, like they look wasted, right? Like they don't look like they have the bulk. Um, but for the most part, we use the percentiles. Um, and then large for gestational age kind of, which is the other side, which are the big babies. So some definitions have the, as more than the 90th percentile for their weight um, and looking large. Uh, some people will say it's more than 4,000 grams, which is like eight pounds, 13 ounces. Some will say more than 4,500 grams, which is nine pounds, 15 ounces. So, and then another really common one is infant of a diabetic mother and, you know, upwards of 10 to 20% of women could be classified as having gestational diabetes in pregnancy, depending on which, which numbers you use. So even though it's targeted, it still does include quite a few babies and, um, which is, and, and then the stress thing. Yeah. Go ahead. Sorry. Well, yeah. And which is why I wanted to do this, this show, because I see this screening happen enough. (laughs) It's common enough that people need to know about it. Yeah. And I think it's, it's common enough that it becomes more common too. you know, it's, it's a little bit one of those. Um, and that could potentially result in overtreatment. And we'll talk about the treatments later. They're not, you know, they're pretty low risk, but they're not all of them. Um, so, and then any kind of distress. So like if the baby was in distress during birth or if the baby starts becoming in distress after birth, isn't breathing well. So, 
any any types of symptoms, and we already said the symptoms are nonspecific, right? So you could sneeze at a baby and, you know, they could potentially meet criteria to, to be screened. So, um, but we really need clinicians to be looking at the baby as opposed to knee-jerking towards, towards this kind of testing. And I really appreciated that in all the literature that I saw that, and, and the recommendations or the guidelines from the American Academy of Pediatrics, that it was, here are your guidelines, but first and foremost, what needs to be applied to this specific baby? Like, because we don't know the numbers, because there's no clear rules around this, just make sh- look at that baby, take put it all in context, and do you need, mm-hmm. you know, does that baby need need screening? Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, that can be really hard. Um, I, I, for five years, I worked in a rural hospital where, you know, looking at the baby meant driving in overnight um, because they, they would have other people covering the hospital at night, but you were the attending. And, um, and I think I agree with you. It's really clear in the literature. It says you have to look at the baby, right? You have to do an assessment. Is the baby doing well? In which case, hey, maybe we should check these numbers and make sure they're correct, right? Or does the baby really not look well? And we need to we need to go down the algorithm, as it were. And I think you know we're we're so or or, or and you are also I'm I'm sure uh, we are so concerned about this because if screening and the solution to level sugar levels um, was didn't create other problems, then, you know, whatever, just do it. Right. But right. because it is interventions and it can highly impact breastfeeding and breastfeeding outcomes and the establishment of a breastfeeding relationship, there's mm-hmm. a lot at stake in deciding yeah. whether to, you know, do something about this or not. Mm-hmm. And not to mention what you said at the beginning, which is really that that critical piece of parents being all of a sudden you know, push to the sidelines as clinical decisions start happening quickly, because this is something that, you know, you want to address if if it's happening quickly enough that the baby's at in danger, Um, but sometimes can be, can be slowed down, right? So that it, most of the time I'd say can be slowed down so that people truly understand, because as soon as you hit parental confidence, you're also, you're also affecting their relationship for the long term. We know that that affects breastfeeding outcomes as well. Um, and bonding, right? Yeah, and that it ties in perfectly with my next question, which is, it, it, yeah, how long does this risk exist, and is it is it an an emergency or is it a, is it an urgency? Yeah, I think those are great questions. So, it, you know, most of the papers will say you know, between 24 and 48 hours. And after 48 hours, like those other systems that we talked about really should be sorting themselves out, right? And uh, we haven't talked a lot about insulin yet and those large for gestational age babies, but in those babies, we do we do feel like, you know, the insulin, the hyperinsulinemia, high insulin levels work themselves out in the first 12 hours. Um that being said, the transient neonatal hypoglycemia probably should be over in the first four hours, right? And then the longer it lasts, the more concerned we are for other things. So this is the other kind of nebulous, um, uncomfortable bit, is that babies who aren't able to maintain their blood sugar, as they're going forward, could have a metabolic disorder, 
So, you know, those screenings that we send to the state, the newborn heel stick, classically, we called that the PKU because that was the only thing we tested for. Now we test for hundreds of inborn errors of metabolism. But one of the first signs of most of those is, is low blood sugar. So, um, so that, you know, that doesn't tell you quite so much the urgency, but the point is, is if the blood sugar issue lasts longer than 48 hours, we're more worried. Most of the time it doesn't. So I I just wanted that to be clear to your listeners too. So not everybody with most people with low blood sugar, with babies with low blood sugar do not need to worry about that. Right. So... Oh, go ahead. No, I was going to say, and especially because, you know, there is this underlying thing of nature that it could be completely normal that (laughs) the the levels go down and then they come up on their own. Um, Uh When referring to, so we've done sort of a general situation and you mentioned the four risk situations of late preterm, small for gestational age, large for gestational age, and infant of a diabetic mother. Is there anything, you know, do you want to get deeper into those? And is there anything specific for one or another that we need to know about? Or can we just continue lumping them all together? Sure. Well, I think that it is important to kind of separate out. You've got the babies where those three systems we talked about just aren't quite kicking in yet, but will, right? So the liver glycogen, the muscles, and the lipids, right? But then the large for gestational age babies and the infant of a diabetic mother also have some insulin stuff going on. And that's important to understand because it's potentially preventable. And as we talk about um, what things people can do to prevent it, um, it's kind of important to understand where it comes from. So for the infant of a diabetic mother, the large for gestational age, generally those babies are coming from an environment where sugars are high and they've learned in fetal life to manage those high blood sugars such that their systems are kind of revved up to deal with extra glucose, right? And they might have um, high insulin and that insulin could persist after birth when the placenta is no longer helping them out with a whole bunch of high blood sugar and boom, their blood sugar goes down, right? Um, We tend to stop checks, like stop those routine screening checks for um, those babies Um, within 12 hours because those babies do equilibrate, right? Their pancreas will be like, oh, right, you know, I'm not in a high insulin environment anymore. And there are these other things I can do to control my blood sugar and not make um, a whole bunch of glucose go out into the bloodstream. And so I'd say that's just a little bit different than those cases that we talked about earlier. Mm-hmm. And I think it's important to to, to really showcase the that we're looking all in all, the idea is we're looking at a metabolic adaptation and not so much of this one sugar level test one time. Right. Yes. And so, you know, unfortunately, I think parents do get kind of, they get, they get stuck on that clock, right? Because as soon as you have a low blood sugar, everybody says, okay, I'm going to check again in 30 minutes, or I'm going to check again in an hour, and you have to feed every two hours now. And, you know, what's really happening physiologically is we're trying to make sure that this isn't severe and persistent low blood sugar, right, which would put you at higher risk for bad outcomes. Um, And we're trying to, in the meantime, give the baby time to recover, right, which can take 12 to 24 hours, depending on what kind of baby you are. Okay, so then... We've talked about why, (laughs) 
before we get into the how this is done, let's take a break. Um, but yeah, let's come back to the specifics. We'll be right back. Tell me if this sounds familiar. You've taken gorgeous photos of your baby or your kids, and then when you want to share them, it is a pain either trying to find the photos or figuring out the group text that they should go to, and then also remembering that, say, Aunt Helen only does email, so you need to send her image separately. Or like in my case, where my husband is a photographer who takes magnificent photos that I rarely actually get to see because they live on his phone or end up scattered in text messages that I can't easily find. Enter the Family Album app, which was created to give parents a secure and easy way to share photos and videos with your loved ones. Basically, it's a personal space for your family's memories without third-party ads or unwanted eyes and with a bunch of fabulous features. It automatically sorts photos and videos by month, allowing you to swipe back in time and easily see how your child has grown. And you can also order eight photo prints every month to be delivered to your home. The Family Album app also has unlimited storage. Plus, it's totally free. Yup, no more worrying about running out of space or being bombarded by third-party ads. So, to all the parents out there still trying to use other messaging apps for your kids' photos, level up your family photo game for free and securely with the Family Album photo sharing app. Head over to the App Store today, search Family Album, all in one word, and download the app to start creating your shared photo legacy. Today's episode is sponsored by Acorns, and sometimes I find that investing gets put off because it doesn't seem urgent or because with our busy lives, we may not have the time to research and manage said investments, which is why I so appreciate that Acorns makes it easy to start automatically saving and investing for your future and that you don't need a lot of money or expertise to invest with acorns in fact you can get started with just your spare change so for example i take advantage of acorns roundup feature where they round up the purchase amounts i make in my linked account to the nearest dollar and then they automatically transfer that to my invest account portfolio also, Acorns can recommend an expert build portfolio that fits you and your money goals, then automatically invests your money for you. For me, that's easy peasy investing. Head to acorns.com slash birthful or download the Acorns app to start saving and investing for your future today. Client testimonial may not be representative of all clients. Tier 1 compensation provided. Compensation provides an incentive to positively promote Acorns. View important disclosures at acorns.com slash birthful. Investing involves risk, including loss of principal. Please consider your objectives, risk tolerance, and Acorns fees before investing. Acorns Advisors LLC Acorns is an SEC-registered investment advisor. Brokerage services are provided to clients of Acorns by Acorn Securities LLC. Member FINRA SIPC. For more information, visit acorns.com. And we are back. Okay, so... Let's say the you have a baby that meets any of those four characteristics or has some indication that hmm it probably is a good idea to check the blood sugar levels. How mm-hmm. is it done? When is it done? What can mm-hmm. parents expect? That's awesome. Yeah, great question. So I think um 
for the most part, it's going to be done by heel stick. So unless you have a baby who's admitted to the NICU and they're getting lines, right? They're putting lines in in another way, generally through the umbilical cord. Um, for most healthy termish babies or babies in a birth center, it's going to be done after the first feed, right? And so sometimes this gets kind of messy because somebody might get a blood sugar before the first feed, but that's not by protocol. Um, so you would get a blood sugar after the first feed because the whole point is that the baby should already be working on some of those calories from the colostrum. And in order to get that blood sugar level, if you're in a risk category, um, then the baby's heel should be warmed with a heat pack and then the baby would get lanced uh, with a heel stick. And so it's like a little cut in the heel and they squeeze the heel Generally, right after birth, it's not excruciatingly um, painful. The babies don't tend to cry a lot, although um, the further you get from birth and the more awake the babies are, it can be very troublesome. And parents who have to have the heel stick done for jaundice, let's say, for days after birth can, can testify to, to how hard it can be. Um, there are a few important uh, considerations. One is that the heel really should be warmed because if the heel isn't warmed, it might not be super accurate. Um, the other is that the bedside test, which is used by most people, isn't the most accurate because it's a whole blood test, not a plasma test. And so depending on the baby's level of um, level of hematocrit, which would be like a test for either anemia or lots of red blood cells, the, the opposite effect, um, you could have... Um, an answer that's not quite accurate. So that's a bit of a problem as well. And but you should get an answer pretty quickly. Yeah. And and I was surprised by how inaccurate it can be because mm -hmm. it said 10 to 20. Um, and I, what's the unit? Milliliter? Milli Milligrams per deciliter. Yep. Yeah. Milligram per milligrams per deciliter liter i can't even say yeah okay so they can be off by 10 and 20 but the sort of general thresholds that i found were you know for babies lower than 30 so right if, if you're off by 20 is it 50 or is it 30 like or is it right. 40 or 20 that that was kind of surprising to me yeah yeah so i think this is where it becomes like if the baby's not symptomatic, then it becomes an urgency, right? And so as a parent, you really could ask if it would make sense to send a plasma level. Um, unfortunately, a plasma level might require getting more blood out than you would with a regular heel stick. The other consideration is that um, generally the bedside tests will overestimate. And so if you're low, then generally, yeah, that makes sense to consider it uh, a closer to true low uh, than if you're high. Um, yeah, but it, it still makes, it still adds another level of uncertainty in an already uncertain algorithm. Mm -hmm. And so, okay, baby was tested within that, like after that first feed. So sometime mm -hmm. within that first hour, maybe, mm -hmm. depending on the mode of, of delivery, cesarean mm -hmm. probably later than that, mm -hmm. um, between that hour and two, what are we looking at and if the reading is low? Yeah, so it depends, again, 
if the baby's symptomatic, things happen a lot faster. And I think any parent will, will want them to happen a lot faster because symptoms show that the brain is potentially reacting right. to, yeah. to the blood sugar. Um, if we're asymptomatic, so no symptoms of low blood sugar, everything is going peachy keen, um, the level where it becomes more of an urgency emergency would be generally we agree around 25. Um, and that would be the level at which people would say, hey, this is really low. I mean, most babies are between 40 and 60 within a couple hours after birth. So 25 is really on the low end of low. And so they would get glucose gel and potentially admitted to the NICU, um, most of the time admitted to the NICU to start IV glucose. Um, and in that case, breastfeeding should continue, right? So it shouldn't be a knee jerk to formula. In that case, we'd be saying, look, you need to be admitted because one of those mechanisms that we were talking about is so off that the baby needs glucose support through it. In other words, it's not about breastfeeding in that case. Breastfeeding is likely to be part of the solution. Right. Um, and so how how would one navigate that of breastfeeding if baby's been taken to the NICU to get IV glucose? Yeah, so I think it depends on the institution. Um, many NICUs are going towards um, open visiting hours, even private rooms, um, but just being an advocate for you and your baby and saying, you know, I really want to breastfeed as soon as, you know, my OBs let me, I'd like to come and be with my baby and I'd like you to take me there now. Thank you very much. And in the meantime, hand expressing or pumping um, to make sure that your body, you know, that, that parent's body who has now been separated from that infant has the chance to be empty, to get the stimulation, to say, to answer that question that your body is asking hormonally, like, hey, are we doing this? Do you want to breastfeed? You want me to make milk? And you need to be saying every couple of hours, yeah, yeah, I really do. Um, many hospitals will then take that colostrum directly to the baby, even if they're not quite ready for you to visit. Um, and that can be baby's first feed um, through a syringe or a swab. Mm -hmm. And I think that's huge for people to hear because it can be stressful if there is a situation of separation of, or if the birth was really long and parents are exhausted. Mm -hmm. But for long-term breastfeeding success, that mm -hmm. time that you're separated from baby is like that first hour is crucial to have mm -hmm. skin to skin and a baby at the breast. And if the baby's not there, it's important that you do something and not yeah. just go like, oh, I'm going to take a nap then. Right. And and depending on where you deliver, um, everybody around you might be saying, go ahead, take a nap. We got the baby. It's going to be fine. Right. And that might look really good after a birth. Um, you know, so one of the other things that I suggest is if if the birth isn't going as you expect, or, um, or even if you anticipate having a baby that might need to be separated for a little while, to have that birth partner, whoever it is, um, be responsible for that conversation. So if you don't have a doula with you, um, if you're not lucky enough to have Adriana at your bedside, um, to just make sure that the birth partner says, okay, you created life, right? My job is going to be to help us remember that we really wanted to hand express after birth, or we really wanted to use a pump after birth if we got separated. Um, and that way it shares out the burden. Um, and it doesn't mean that whoever birthed the baby has to, like they can still say, no, I don't feel good, but at least to be reminded. 
because um, the evidence is very strong that the first hour after birth is essential to establishing a milk supply. Yeah. And I, so I carry, <laughs> I carry a spoon, like a wrapped in a plastic sealed spoon in my doula bag. <laughs> nice. Just for it. those moments, because I find that hand expressing, yeah. you can, if you just try to get like pumps and tubes, there's a, you're, the colostrum, those golden drops get lost in the tangle, whereas you can just go straight to the spoon, yeah. straight to baby's mouth. And I've yep. had situations where even birth partners have taken the colostrum in that spoon and walked it over to the NICU and given it oh, beautiful. to baby. Um, awesome. Not people around weren't that too happy about it, but this dad was like, uh, excuse I me, it. I am doing this. It's my baby. Um, <laughs> which is good for him, right? I'm going to feed the baby. Good. It is. That is so good for him. You know, the other thing is if you're in a hospital and you didn't bring your Adriana-approved spoon, um, you can ask for a medicine cup. And those work very well, and people are a little bit calmer about them. Yeah, I just like that the spoon's so. super shallow, because you're probably just going to get yes. a couple, like, you know, the baby's stomach is only a little marble is the size that you need, so. Right, yeah, and the medicine cup is 20 ml, so all of these things can contribute to a parent's confidence and self-efficacy. Right, and the cup looks a lot bigger. Yeah. You're like, I'm not making uh -huh. enough, I can't fill that cup, where it's like a, a spoon. Right. Like, you've got half a teaspoon, yeah. all is good. It's perfect, right? Yeah. Um, and so we will link on the show notes to you guys have a beautiful handout in your website for hand expressing. And I'll link also to the video from um, Dr. Morton uh, from Stanford oh, yeah. that shows how to do it. Because the rates remind me of the person, if you have know them off the top of your head, I think it was something like 40 to 60% increase in breast milk production if you hand express during that first hour, something like that. Yeah, it's it's pretty close. I remember it in MLs, like by the end of week one, you could make between two and 400 more MLs uh, per day um, if you hand expressed in the first hour. And again, you know, if you if if your baby is being separated from you, it's, it's possible that you've had a really high risk birth. And if you wake up two hours later and express, do not be hard on yourself for it. You, you just be excited that you remember as soon as you can. And the other thing to think about, too, is whether when you have that conversation with your birth partner, do you want them hand expressing for you if for some reason you have a complication and you end up going, you know, being asleep um, when you didn't expect to be? And I think the answer to that is whatever is going to be right for you and your and your birth partner. Yeah. Right. And and what is going to feel right to you guys if this happens? Um, we have had situations where we've helped express uh, women who have ended up um, either asleep or in a coma um, and then have recovered and you maintain their ability to to produce milk uh, for for when they're able to then reunite with their mm -hmm. baby. And I've been in the situations where where birth person is just too exhausted or can't but but they want to breastfeed and they're like no you know do it for me or have the partner do it for me, or yeah. somebody just do it <laughs> just just do it yeah. get the milk it's good um but right. having reading the handout and looking at the video you can practice it during pregnancy so that if you're placed in that situation you have an idea of how to do it 
Yeah. And, you know, we, we've only talked so far about the babies who go to the NICU, um, but I can talk about prenatal hand expression right now, too, if you're yeah, go. If you're interested. I'm not sure how we want to organize well, that. Well, let's, let's put that on the shelf for a minute because yeah. I do want to get into, you mentioned glucose gel, you mentioned an IV, yeah. and yeah. a lot of the times, instead of that, what... I'm more familiar with is formula supplementation. So yeah. I want to tease that out and, and make sure people know their options and what to advocate mm -hmm. for, for, you know, protecting their breastfeeding relationship. Yeah, I think that's great because formula supplementation has really made its way off of a whole bunch of protocols. That doesn't mean it's not being done anymore. Um, and so what I think we really need to remember is that um, you can have transient neonatal hypoglycemia just all by your lonesome, you know, perfect baby. You just have a, a few other factors going on and you have some hypoglycemia. Um, and then you can have hypoglycemia because you're not feeding the way you need to be, right? And so, and in, in my opinion, formula should only be considered uh, in that later stage. And I'll explain what I mean. So first of all, for the, for the first stage, which are the babies who just can't quite get the liver and the muscle and the fat kind of working all together at the same time, or have a little bit of extra insulin uh, being pumped out, those will be... Babies who end up between 26 and 40 or 26 and 44, so it's that middle range. And different algorithms will have different um, cutoffs. So you might see 25 to 40, you might see 26 to 44. And this is a little bit about the uncertainty that we have. But if you're in that range, what we do is, for the most part, if you're in a hospital that is using glucose gel, you can get glucose gel, um, which is glucose um, and a little bit of water and a little bit of glycerin, and it's squirted into the cheek of the baby before the baby goes to breast the next time. And the reason why is because the, one of the things that we see is that babies who get hypoglycemic get a little punky, they get a little sleepy, and the glucose both treats the low blood sugar, um, potentially preventing any long-term neurodevelopmental issues, but also wakes the baby up a little so they potentially feed better, right? So that they don't go down that spiral of, oh, now I'm sleepy, now I'm going to feed badly, and now I'm going to get worse and worse. Um, and you can do that and you check the blood sugar again, 30 minutes after a feed, and you can do that up to three times. Um, just to remember, this is going to take time for the baby's liver to kick in and the muscles to kick in and the insulin to downregulate, right? And so generally that's what the glucose gel is used for. In hospitals where they don't have the glucose gel yet, and I think it's quickly becoming standard of care, um, people will tend to move towards IV somewhere in the 30s range, um, IV glucose, um, which may, again, lead to separation and, and impact breastfeeding. Most people agree that more than 45 or more than 40 to 45, and you're just going to keep watching if you're in a high risk or um, we just consider that like, okay, you know, you're, you're, you're doing okay for right now. Um, I feel like there was one other part to the question that I didn't quite answer. Yeah. Um, when do you go to supplementate to formula? Oh, yeah, the formula. The, yeah, the, the whole point of the question, which is, so what I find that happens is that people start confusing 
with more than one low blood sugar, they start confusing poor feeding with other causes of newborn hypoglycemia. And so they say, oh, well, it must be about how feeding is going. So use a bottle of formula and you'll get better, which may actually be true, right? The blood sugar may recover more quickly. But of course, we know that the other thing the bottle of formula does is that it interrupts the establishment of breastfeeding and it offers the baby an artificial nipple, which may interrupt breastfeeding. And then the baby will sleep through the next breastfeeding. And then the mom's colostrum production might slow down and she might get less milk towards the end of the first week. So there's a lot of reasons that we don't do that. Um, and so what really should happen is if the baby is hypoglycemic, if even if there's glucose gel around, even if there isn't, is breastfeeding has to be assessed and it has to be assessed well, which means we need to look, we need to watch a latch and we need to know how the latch is going, not just that the baby happens to be attached to the nipple, right? But you need somebody educated and looking at the curve of the cheek, looking at the sucks and swallows, looking at any dimpling and the lip flanging, right? We need to look at breastfeeding. And then we need to look at mother's milk production, right? If a mother is sitting in bed and has tubular breasts and a history of PCOS and her breasts had no change in pregnancy, right, then it's more concerning. It might be a problem with uh, low milk supply or low colostrum supply. Um, in my experience, most of the time it's not. And when people start saying the word formula, if your parents, if the goal, you know, the goal is exclusive breastfeeding, then what needs to happen next is you feed the baby and after feeding the baby at the breasts, hand express or pump, whatever you can. And don't feel bad right, about what comes out, but just get your little spoon. And if you're able to get a few drops, great. Because, you know, anything will help in the case of a hypoglycemic baby. But more often than not, you're able to get out a few more mLs and convince people like, look, this isn't about volume. I have a normal volume. The volume that the baby is supposed to get right now is five, right? So, yeah. So I think formula is often used, but mostly because people are not assessing breastfeeding. Mm. Is there any situation where indicators come together to make it more of a push for formula or no? For example, um, a mom with gestational diabetes who had a cesarean. Mm -hmm. So baby's been, so you know, d d didn't get that skin to skin immediately but probably mm -hmm. an hour or two if by the mm -hmm. time they get to the recovery room and starts initiating, trying to initiate breastfeeding. Yeah. So I'd say it, you know, it depends on how breastfeeding is going. If breastfeeding isn't going well because the baby is sleepy, then the mom could be hand expressing and, and trying to feed the colostrum that way. If breastfeeding isn't going well because there's a latch problem, then we should be looking at the tongue and seeing if we can help with the latch. And if it's mom's side, then um, like in the case that I was talking about with the mammary hypoplasia or delayed lactogenesis too, then if, if there's no milk production, that would be an indication for feeding the baby something else, right? Rule, rule number one is feed the baby. Um, if that can be expressed breast milk, great. I believe we should all live in a world in which donor milk is freely accessible, but we don't. Um, and so formula is, you know, that's what it was created for, were instances where 
breast milk is not available. Is there a situation, so you mentioned situations with the the birthing person. Is there a situation with the baby's sugar levels that would dictate formula instead of glucose or IV in that sort of situation scenario? That's a great question, and I'm not a neonatologist, but my sense would be no, as long as they're adequately feeding, right? Because if they're adequately feeding and hypoglycemic, it's not about, women don't make skim milk, right? You don't make skim colostrum. It's not about the feeding. As long as feeding's going well, I'd say it's not, it's not because, there's no baby side indication. Mm -hmm. It's Um, more of keep watching it and try to... Or go to IV glucose or glucose gel. Right. And now, on the other hand, for people who, you know, there are communities where people are not available to assess how breastfeeding is going. And so a baby side indication in that case would be dehydration, right? Because if a baby's dehydrated, by definition, they're not getting what they need. Yeah. And I'm talking more like within within those first couple of hours. Yeah. I mean, in my dream world, all this would be assessed prenatally. And then in the postpartum period, we would know what we were expecting and we would make, you know, the right decisions. Um, And I agree with you. I don't see a role for formula um, based on neonatal indications. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because that brings in a a whole slew of complications. It's like, you know, you've got the birth cascade of interventions. It's like the breastfeeding cascade of interventions. We should do a a handout. Of that. Yes. Like, here's all the different ways <laughs> that this can fall apart. Right. Um, and why you and need to where hand can express. we build the dam? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, now, th- so in ter- you mentioned preventative stuff that people yeah. can do. What are those things? Like, well, and I think we. Go ahead. Sorry, like say, you know, because we mentioned four factors that would make it probably the chance that baby's going to get screened because usually a healthy pregnancy with a healthy birth with a healthy baby, like that doesn't need to be checked for sugar levels. No. But it's right. more on these situations of late, late preterm, preterm, small for gestational, large for gestational age, and infant of diabetic mom. Um is there something they can do ahead of time knowing that there's a higher chance of this situation happening? Yeah, and, and no, nothing's been proven in like a randomized controlled trial, but we do know certain things increase the risk of, of having a baby who is large for gestational age, right? Or, um, you know, that it can be worse to be an infant of a diabetic mother if the blood sugar wasn't well controlled. So I'd say if people have gestational diabetes, doing as best as you can with control and doing as best as you can with weight gain so that the baby is continuously exposed as much as possible to a normal glucose level, right? So that they don't rev up. Um, So eating as close to a healthy diet as you can get. Um, And then the other would be prenatal hand expression. So there's one study that was done in women of um, who had diabetes in pregnancies, so gestational diabetes or type one or type two. And they started hand expressing at 36 weeks postpartum. And the big question was, is this going to increase their risk of um, early labor? And it didn't. Um, It also didn't decrease the risk of infants having um, formula or needing supplemental feeds while in the hospital, but it did provide the women with a shorter time until that second milk came in. 
and they were able to breastfeed more. And so um, most OBs will be okay with around thir at 36 weeks of, of pregnancy of starting to see if, if hand expression feels okay, because touching your breasts in pregnancy um, sometimes doesn't feel okay. Uh, but if it does feel okay to start doing that once or twice a day and one of the other things they found in the study is the more you do it, the more you make, which of course makes sense. Mm -hmm. And would it also make sense to, if you're getting anything out, to save it and mm -hmm. then bring it with you to the hospital? Absolutely. Although hospitals can be very fussy about what it's brought in. And so I would say, you know, if that's your goal, making sure that you bring it in something that the hospital is going to... Um, feel like it was safely stored and so forth. So Medela has some colostrum syringes. They're wicked expensive. But another type of capped syringe would work really well um, and frozen and put in a Ziploc bag. The other thing is when you hand it to the hospital, they might not know what to do with it. And so it's important to tell them to leave it frozen unless you need it because I have also heard of people bringing in their um, prenatally expressed milk and then it gets thawed. And then many hospitals have policies because of their preterms that say you have to use it within 24 to 48 hours and it gets tossed, which is really sad. So sad, yeah. Ugh. So yeah. sad, because a lot of work went into <laughs> just setting up that oh, situation. Man. Yeah. Right. Um, would it be a good idea to, as you do the hospital tour, talk to somebody, maybe even in the NICU, and say, hey, if yeah. I were going to bring in my colostrum, how should I bring it? And maybe even get it in writing? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. And like maybe a lactation consultant at the hospital could help advocate for you. Um, the other thing you could do is, you know, it gives them kind of a heads up that says, you know, look, we're going to have people who are going to bring this in. What freezer will we use? What labeling will we use? Because, of course, it's your label that's going to go on it, but it's going to be for the baby, you know, so they need to think through those things. Oh, and I think labeling is also something that we should mention because mm -hmm. I, th I think it's... It, they're more apt to use it if each syringe has a date and time of when it was yes. collected. Yes. And, you know, for better or for worse, um, I think that's that's one of the things that the bedside nurse will think is really important. Um, in addition to which, unfortunately, milk gets mixed up in hospitals. So name on EH makes sense, too. Right. Yeah. Which, you know, it should be, like you're saying, it should be enough for them to say, this is my milk, I have it, here, give it to my baby, yeah. and don't throw it out because I am the parent and I'm telling you to, <laughs> right? Right, because, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, but unfortunately, these things go through levels and levels. Um, there's also, there are resources uh, that if a provider, so if somebody listens to this and brings their colostrum and the the hospital doesn't quite know what to do with it there are places that the hospital can call for advice um breastfeeding kind of consult lines like the infant risk center run out of texas tech we run the lactation study center here um and all that information is on our website mm -hmm. great things now let's get back to that thing on the we left on the shelf about hand expressing 
What was yeah. it? <laughs> yes. It was hand expressing prenatally, which I feel like we did a pretty good job of covering. The only thing that we don't know about prenatal hand expression is if you are at high risk of delivering early, um, if it makes sense. Unfortunately, those would be the moms that you'd want to have extra colostrum around. Um, but, you know, the difference between a 25-weeker and a 26 and 27-weeker is huge. Um, and so if a parent is at high risk for delivery early, we want them to, to bake the baby as long as they can. Right. Um, and so I don't think the risk would be worth it in that case. No. And you mentioned starting to hand express around 36 weeks, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And the longer, I mean, that's right. And so the longer a baby can, can gestate, even at 36 weeks, um, makes a big difference, whether they're going to stay with you, whether they're going to come home with you, whether they're going to get jaundice afterward. Yeah. And even pay attention. Um, like, are you hand expressing and do contractions start? If they do, stop. <laughs> yes. Right. I know. Right. That's one way to like check within and with yourself. Is my, is this going to, my body going to yeah, react to this? Yeah. Right. Oh, very cool. Is there anything else that you wanted to make sure we mentioned that we haven't already? So what I'd really like to talk about to end up is, um, you know, this this other part of, of the picture, which is if a baby is going to get supplemented, right, with formula or with maternal express breast milk um, or with donor milk is how the baby gets supplemented, right? Because we, I don't think we have clear enough data yet on um, is it the artificial nipple? Is it how much flow through the artificial nipple? What part of it is making it harder for people to breastfeed afterwards? Um, but this being said, you know, what we tend to find, particularly in those early days, is that probably not introducing an artificial nipple makes the most sense and using things like the spoon or the cup um, or finger feeding, syringe feeding, things like that probably make more sense in, in the near term, um, than putting a bottle. And, and the other thing about the bottle is the colostrum gets lost in it, right? Because it's so huge. And if a bottle of formula is used, those bottles are ginormous. They're two ounces each. And they're made like that for a reason, right? Because then you'll use more, right? We'll expand baby's stomach and you know, and then we sell more formula. So, and by we, of course, I mean the company. And potentially I, increase, increase um, obesity rates because those right. stomachs are stretched and babies are eating more and continue exactly. to eat more. Yeah. yeah. And so, so, you know, if formula supplementation is something that has to happen for, for a medical reason, you know, and you're an educated parent, you've listened to the podcast and so forth, um, I would actually pour out uh, most of the formula say, how much are we going to use? Right. Okay. We'll use 10 mLs or we'll use 15 mLs that, you know, depending on the age of the baby between five and 15 mLs is going to be physiologic. And, and so there's no need because of hypoglycemia to just swamp the babies with, with supplementation if breastfeeding isn't going well. So um, now if it's breast milk and you want to give it all, you know, that, that might be a conversation worth having. But in the first two days, you probably will have between 5 and 15 mLs per session, which is normal. Right. And it, it goes back to no matter what you're giving them, whether it's express breast milk or formula, that it's still better to do some finger feeding, spoon, cup, whatever, SNS, whatever, and not necessarily put your breast milk in a bottle to give because that's a different set of problems that you're creating 
in terms of functioning of the tongue and jaw and how to breastfeed. Right. And, the, you know, there's a lot of long-term data that we're missing on this stuff, but, you know, particularly if it's going to be short-term supplementation. Um, I don't think we need to be afraid of bottles, but if it's going to be short-term supplementation, I wouldn't, I would not recommend taking the risk. Yeah. And it's about, I think that just put it, like you said, putting it in perspective of this is a moment that you are establishing breastfeeding mm -hmm. so doing you know what you do during those first few days is very different what you are able to do with different consequences when baby's a month old or you know mm -hmm. exactly or even a week yeah 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 yeah, so, yeah. um casey if people wanted to reach out to you or had questions can they do that and how can they do that yeah absolutely so we have um the website and um, that's probably the best way. So breastfeeding.urmc.edu. So it's a really kind of easy website uh, to navigate. There's the clinic phone number on there. And um, my email address is affiliated with my bio as well. So I'm happy to answer questions. The other thing is the Lactation Study Center um, so we, we run the Lactation Study Center. We answer questions from providers, but we also answer questions from just parents as well. And that's through Mother to Baby. So if you Google Mother to Baby, URMC, we have a phone number, we have an email address. Um, and then the Lactation Study Center, we have an email address and a phone number as well. Um, so we can also help advocate for people or get data to the right providers for people. Um, how does that sound? Yeah, lots of places to get in touch with you. And I will link them all in the show notes. Wait. Yeah. Oh, that would be awesome. This was really fun. I feel like we went way over. No worries. We, you know, sometimes the conversation's just good. Not only was the conversation really good, but this is me, Adriana, interrupting the end of the episode to say we talked about a bunch of other stuff and it was so much. We already went over time, so I had to make a harsh decision and split up that content and package it for the birthful patrons as extra content from this episode. So if you want to hear more about Casey's views on pacifier use and also preventive measures that you can take during pregnancy uh, in terms of evaluating your own breasts to make sure you get a heads up if there's any possible complications that are going to show up with breastfeeding in those early days, go to patreon.com slash birthful to find out more. Now, we got so wrapped up in our conversation about when and how to give glucose or supplements that I totally forgot to ask about what happens when baby is tested and sugar levels are fine. I emailed Casey back to ask about this, and she said that for high-risk babies, they need three normals, so between 40 and 50, depending on the institution, um, three normal sugar levels, then testing is stopped, and that for babies without risk fa factors, if a glucose test is done and normal, then generally there isn't need for repeat testing unless ongoing concerns or new concerns. And also she wanted me to reemphasize that skin to skin helps with blood sugar. So babies should be there skin to skin on the parents, even th during those heel sticks, as it also helps with pain. All right, here's the actual end of the show. Thank you so very much for being on the show. Oh my gosh, it was so much fun. Thank you for having me. I hope I get to come back sometime. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's do it. <laughs>
Mighty Ones, find the in-depth show notes for this episode at birthful.com, where you can also learn more about me, the show, send me messages, and more. This episode was produced by me and made possible by you. The title song for this podcast is Vive Ace by Kevin McLeod, and the sponsorship song is Air Hockey Saloon by Chris Zabriskie. Find them both at freemusicarchive.org. Oh, and here's what Dr. Rosen Carroll had for breakfast. I had bananas with cashew butter and coconut flakes. Yeah, and I think, and sunflower seeds. I'm Adriana Lozada. Please join me next week when I'll be talking to a mighty parent as they share their amazing story here at the Birthful Podcast. Thanks so very much for listening. This episode is copyright 2019 by Adriana Lozada. Hey, Mighty One. Did you know that if you started listening to one birthful episode per day at the start of your pregnancy, your baby would be about three months old before you got through all of them? That is so much birthful. So to ease us into the summer and to help you catch up on your listening, we're going back to releasing one episode per week instead of two. Now you know.